You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Power. And due to popular demand, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Rob Stevens. Again, today, he did a presentation on till samples uh, four months ago, approximately. And the feedback I received from that was excellent because it's that type of teaching that can equip you to further assess and be able to critique and analyze mineral exploration press releases, which can be very technical. And if you're not trained in it, it can be quite confusing. You don't know what to make of it. Well, Dr. Rob's here today to, to teach us and to equip us further. So Rob, thanks for coming on the show. You're the author of Mineral Exploration and Mining Essentials, which is the number one book I recommend for new uh, mining stock speculators. Uh, teach us about geophysical data and what we should know about it, please. All right, perfect. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bill, and and uh, welcome everybody. Uh, glad to be here again. Um, as Bill said, my name is Rob Stevens, the author of Mineral Exploration and Mining Essentials. And uh, Bill asked me to talk a little bit about assessing geophysical data today. So uh, let's dig into that and and learn a little bit about uh, geophysics. So what is geophysics? Let's just start with the basics there. Um, so geophysics measures the physical properties of rocks. So things like magnetism, uh, there are some minerals that are slightly magnetic and, and sometimes mineral deposits are magnetic. Uh, so you can measure the magnetic properties of the rocks as one example of a way of helping you to potentially find a mineral deposit. Uh, but there is a whole range of different physical properties that could be measured. Uh, magnetism is only one. Uh, conductivity, the ab ability of rocks to transmit a current. Density, so you know how heavy are rocks. Uh, for example, uh, large bodies of sulfide uh, mineralization have quite a high density and uh, generate a, a strong uh, gravity anomaly, is what we call it, based on the density of the rocks. And then also electric properties uh, is another example. Uh, so it's measuring those physical properties of rocks and, and geologists and explorationists do two things uh, with that geophysical data. Uh, the first one is hopefully to try and identify the location of a potential mineral deposit. Uh, so again, I gave the example, some mineral deposits might be uh, relatively magnetic. And so we could uh, uh, potentially locate the deposit, uh, the location of that deposit uh, through a magnetic survey. But in other cases, geophysics is also used uh, to understand the geological framework or as a kind of mapping tool. Uh, and again, if I come back to uh, the magnetic method as one example, uh, the magnetic method mostly detects the presence of a mineral called magnetite, uh, which is magnetic. All rocks have a little bit of magnetite in it, uh, but the amount of magnetite varies from rock to rock type. And so if you do a magnetic survey uh, over an area, what you will generate is a sort of pseudo-geology map. Uh, it's really measuring those differences in the, in the amount of magnetite in the rocks, but it does produce a map that can really help geologists to understand that, that framework of the geology, which is really important <clears throat> uh, for exploration. Now, the, the next thing I would say is that geophysics is one of the tools in, in exploration. And uh, it's not a single tool. Maybe it's like a whole bunch of screwdrivers that are different because there are these different methods uh, within geophysics, but it's just one tool. And it really complements geological and geochemical methods. 
so what I like to really look at is not just the geophysical features, but what else is there? Is there good geology? Uh, are there geochemical features, copper, gold anomalies showing up uh, that support that geophysical signature? And ultimately, geophysics is really there, along with some of these other tools to help define drill targets. Ultimately, we want to drill holes, get down on the ground, bring some samples up that we can analyze and study. Uh, that's really the truth of you know what is below the ground. So um, I've already used the word a couple of times, geophysical anomalies, uh, just to focus on that again for a second. Um, you know, what is an anomaly? An anomaly is something that is different than the ordinary or, or different than the surroundings. And mineral deposits uh, as a geological feature are anomalies. They're rare uh, and they have very unique features. So a gold deposit or a copper deposit uh, does have distinctive features. And so when we do a geophysical survey, uh, we are looking for those unique features that might connect it with a mineral deposit. And we refer to them as anomalies because they're different. Uh, so we're always looking for, quote, geophysical anomalies. Like a mag high, we would consider to be an anomaly. So you'll see that term used a lot. And it, again, it's just because deposits themselves are uh, anomalous. Um, I want to also just emphasize that geophysics uh, only measures the physical properties of rocks. What those results actually mean is up to interpretation. So if somebody says, uh, you know, we've got a mag high and we think that is a copper deposit, that's great. But really what it is is a mag high and we don't know what it is until we can get in there and drill. Uh, and I would say geophysics can be can be complex. Um, there's a lot of processing that goes on. There's a lot of science and technology behind it. Uh, so again, really, we have to chew things uh, with drilling. And many geophysical methods can be used on the same project. Uh, you know, if we're looking at a magnetic method, an electrical method, and gravity, those are each measuring different properties of the rocks, and can each tell us something a little bit different about what might be beneath the ground. So you will see companies using multiple methods in the same area because they're each helping us to understand what's going on beneath the ground and the potential for a deposit. Uh, and maybe the last thing is uh, geophysics is primarily done on the surface or in the air, but above the ground. Um, uh, and uh, just to frame that with, you can also do geophysics down drill holes. So I don't want to say it's totally, it's entirely done on the surface or above, but it's mostly something that you do on the surface. Uh, and geophysics can penetrate down hundreds of meters below the ground. And so you are able to get features that might suggest the presence of a deposit three or 400 meters beneath the surface. Um, the deeper it is, the less resolution or the less clarity that the geophysical data will give you. Uh, but it is very helpful that way and that it can, can give you some sense of what's going on as you get deeper down uh, into the ground. So let's just look at a couple of methods here. I want to poke uh, around at, a, at three of them just briefly to give you a little bit of a greater sense of how to look at uh, geophysics. And the first one I want to start off here is the magnetic method, uh, probably the most widely used of all the geophysical uh, tools out there uh, is the magnetic method. And so again, what does it measure? It's measuring the relative amounts of mineral, the mineral primarily called magnetite, uh, but there's also another mineral referred to as pyrotite that, that also has uh, 
some um, magnetic character to it. So these aren't really the economic minerals we're looking for. Uh, you know, magnetite is an iron ore. So yes, if you were uh, looking for, for iron ore deposits, uh, of course, uh, the magnetite is, is directly that ore. Uh, but if you're looking for, say, gold or copper deposits, the magnetite is not really what you're interested in. It's just that there can be an abundance of it in the deposit uh, and therefore help to identify uh, its location. Um, these surveys can be done on the air, uh, or sorry, in the air or on the ground, uh, either way. Um, and if we just look at the, uh, the diagram here uh, on the left uh, with the helicopter, uh, what we have coming out of the front of the helicopter uh, is actually the magnetic probe. So the very tip of that is where uh, the magnetic sensor is and is measuring the magnetic character of the rocks as the helicopter flies over the surface. Uh, and the photo here on the right, uh, these are a couple of guys uh, on one of the islands in the high Arctic. Uh, and they're they're involved in diamond exploration, and the magnetic sensor is actually the little white cylinder uh, just uh, above their or behind their head. Uh, above that is a GPS receiver, uh, keeps their location um, tight, and then on their chest is the location of a of the, the actually where the data is getting collected into. Uh, so again, on in the air or on the ground, often what companies will do is they'll do an airborne survey first because you can cover big areas quite quickly. And then they'll follow that up with a ground survey in areas of interest because by surveying right on the ground, you're getting a better resolution, tighter control of the features uh, you know, immediately below <clears throat> uh, the surface. And the last thing I would say about pretty much all geophysical methods is we do them on a grid pattern. So you, you will fly a series of grid lines spaced anywhere between, well, sometimes they're as little as 20 meters apart. Often for airborne surveys, they're more like 100 or 200 meters apart. Uh, but you fly a regular grid pattern in order to have you know, complete and consistent coverage of data. And then from that, you can make all sorts of um, <clears throat> beautiful uh, colored maps that uh, we'll look at some examples uh, here. Uh, in a moment. Uh, maybe again, just the last point, the magnetic method can be used as a mapping tool to understand the geology and a direct detection tool to, to directly detect uh, the location of deposits. So as a couple of uh, examples here, uh, the map on the left, uh, this is for an exploration project in uh, the northern part of British Columbia, uh, where there are some copper, gold, uh, silver targets. And what we're looking at here is the uh, total magnetic field. So this is the magnetic character of the rocks. And what they've actually used this for is as a mapping tool. And you can see a number of uh, dashed white lines crossing uh, over the map. Those have been interpreted to be faults. So they're mag lows. They're these linear mag lows. Uh, and those are interpreted to be faults. And, and the reason they're mag lows is the interpretation is, is that there have been hydrothermal fluids or these fluids that often create or form mineral deposits have traveled along the faults and in the process uh, broken down some of the magnetite uh, that was uh, naturally in the rocks. Um, what happens is the hydrothermal fluids have a lot of sulfur in it, kind of like a hot spring. 
and uh, magnetite gets changed to a pyrite. So uh, without getting into the chemistry too detailed, but the magnetite breaks down, becomes pyrite. And so now you have a mag low. And the reason they like faults is because faults are great locations for mineral deposits. So this way, they've been able to identify faults from the magnetic data that really uh, they couldn't effectively identify by mapping in the field. So, so really helpful to, to help them target where to you know, follow up and do more work. On the right is an example of a direct uh, detection example. Uh, this is for uh, a deposit uh, located in the Yukon Territory in Northern Canada uh, called the Minto deposit. And you can see um, uh, the, the Minto deposit itself uh, stands out as a mag high. So this red area, higher magnetic feature. And that's great when you can do a survey and show exactly what a known deposit's signature is, then you've got better control of your data because you have a known deposit, it's a mag high. Then if we look at this map, we see several other targets here uh, that are also mag highs. So we know the deposits in the area have a mag signature, those become excellent targets. And actually the one just to the left of the Minto deposit on this map, um, is a deposit called the Area 2. And actually, since this was taken, it was effectively discovered and now already mined out. So, um, you know, this was very effective at, at directly identifying that deposit. Uh, one other uh, example I'll give here for the magnetic method, um, nice bright maps here, uh, is, is diamond expiration. And these are a couple of maps uh, focusing in on some diamond exploration in uh, northern Canada. And diamond deposits uh, occur in a rock type called a kimberlite. And a kimberlite has a, a circular or, or, or round um, expression on the surface. And kimberlites uh, have a unique magnetic signature. Sometimes they're mag highs. Sometimes they're mag lows. It's not necessarily whether it's a high or a low. It's the character of the signature relative to the surrounding rock. So again, that anomaly character. And we can see on the left map, this is a, a regional map where the anomaly is uh, being circled. And then the uh, map on the right here is a, is a you know, focusing right in on that feature. So you can see a very distinctive circular uh, mag low. And then over printed on this, uh, all of these black or kind of purple circles here uh, represent where they've taken geochemical samples. Uh, this would be actually till samples of, of glacial till that they've identified for what they call kimberlite indicator minerals. Uh, kimberlite is the type of rock that the, the diamonds are found in. And so you can see here, there's a very nice geochemical feature, all these purple dots, uh, right over top of that mag signature, uh, and then down the ice flow direction from that, which is how the kimberlite minerals are kind of smeared down ice, as, as in this area, glaciers uh, float over top of it. So what a great target that is. An excellent mag uh, signature that is um, really consistent with the kind of signatures you get in a kimberlite, the diamond hosting rock. And uh, whoops, on top of it as well, you also have the, um, uh, the geochemical features. So uh, that leads itself to a really great uh, drill target. Uh, the second method I wanted to talk about is induced polarization, otherwise known as IP. 
So induced polarization is an electrical method. So it's using electrical features and it primarily measures the resistivity and chargeability of rocks. So, so two different features. So resistivity is uh, the extent to which a current will travel through rocks. And chargeability is the extent to which uh, the rock mass will take on an electric charge. Uh, so this is quite nice because uh, it, um, <clears throat> it measures two different properties. And the way it generally works is you, you uh, drive an electric charge into the ground, and then you turn that off and you measure the response after the charge is being turned off. And one of the primary uh, features that induced polarization identifies are sulfide minerals, and particularly the mineral pyrite. So many, many of our gold, or sorry, of our metal deposits, gold, copper, uh, nickel, zinc, um, you know, a wide range of uh, our metal uh, deposits will have a lot of pyrite. So the sulfide mineral pyrite, uh, and that pyrite will occur in what we call a disseminated manner. So it means that there's lots of little bits of pyrite all throughout the rock associated, let's say, with the gold deposit. In the induced polarization method, what you do is you charge up the ground. And those pyrite crystals have uh, an ability to grab that electric charge. So they take the electric charge. Then when you turn the current off, they release that charge back out. And that's what's measured is actually the release of the charge back out. So if there's a lot of that disseminated pyrite in the ground, you'll get a strong chargeability anomaly because the all the pyrite crystals or grains grabbed that charge and then released it uh, when you turned off the current. And because, again, so many deposits have this disseminated pyrite associated it, with them, when you get a strong chargeability anomaly, uh, geologists will then make an interpretation and say, well, we think that that's a body of rock that has a lot of pyrite in it and you know, could be uh, a gold deposit or copper deposit uh, that we're looking for. For example, porphyry copper deposits have a lot of disseminated sulfides and often show up as good, strong uh, chargeability anomalies. Um, and I'm just going to go to the next one. Well, maybe I'll point to this um, <clears throat> image here if, uh, for a moment. Often uh, induced polarization data is presented as these cross sections, uh, sometimes referred to as pseudo sections, and they actually do essentially profile at depth. And you can see it's a little fuzzy, but on the left, we've got 200 meters, 400, 600, 800 uh, below the surface. So it is like a vertical section through the ground. This uh, pink colored area right in the middle <clears throat> is a high chargeability anomaly. Interpretation is lots of disseminated sulfides. Uh, and then we can see there was a pretty nice uh, drill hole in here, 292 meters at 0.55% copper, uh, as well as some silver and gold. So, you know, that chargeability anomaly uh, uh, panned out to be definitely one with uh, quite a bit of sulfides in it. Here's another one, and I do find IP uh, can be something you got to spend a while looking at it to sort of really get a sense of, of you know, what it's trying to tell you. Uh, but what we're looking at here is two different types of data. The top one is the resistivity data. So this is 
the ability of the current to, to travel through the rocks. And then the bottom one is the chargeability anomaly, the ability of the rocks to take on a charge. So slightly different features. If I start with the bottom one, what we see is a high chargeability anomaly, which is, in this case, actually the mineralized uh, zone or the ore body is down here. So lots of disseminated sulfides. What we can see in the resistivity data here is also that same deposit stands out and it stands out as an area with high resistivity. And the, the reason is, is because um, it's uh, many mineral deposits have a lot of quartz in them, a lot of quartz veining, a lot of what we call silicification, and that creates a high resistivity in the rocks. Current doesn't travel through quartz uh, veining and that sort of thing fairly well. So it's nice to get those two different types of data because the, the two data can, can work together uh, to help better define um, you know, the target that you're looking for. So, so you get two, di two different pieces of data at the same time out of induced polarization. Um, and the last example I want to give here is the electromagnetic method uh, that's primarily designed to look for conductors. And probably the best conductors uh, or, or the, the best ones to find are uh, sulfide bodies. So what we call massive sulfide bodies. So those mineral deposits consist primarily of sulfide minerals. Uh, sulfide minerals uh, uh, conduct a current really well. And so part of the idea is you drive a current through the ground in one area, you measure the response uh, in another area. And if that response uh, is strong, then you've passed through a conductor uh, in the rocks beneath the ground. And again, then you can interpret what that conductor uh, may be. The nice thing with the uh, most electrical methods, but definitely with the electromagnetic method, is you can vary frequencies. And the different frequencies correlate to depth of penetration. So very high frequencies tend to just uh, go a small, travel a, a small distance beneath the ground and uh, much higher frequencies, uh, uh, if I've got that right, um, hopefully I didn't confuse that, will go deeper down into the uh, ground um, so that you can get a bit of a depth profile. And so this example here on the right, this is for uh, what's called the Laylor Massive Sulfide Deposit. And it's quite nicely here being profiled out at about 600 meters depth. Uh, so again, the nice thing with electromagnetics is you can get some depth control uh, by varying the frequency of that survey. And, and so that's you know really useful in terms of targeting your drill holes is kind of knowing what depth that, that target is at. So uh, yeah, just a few examples uh, of uh, how to, or you know, of geophysical methods that are used. So if I come back to as as an investor, how would you assess this data? What should you think about that as you're you're looking at companies or projects? So the first thing I would say it's technically complex. Uh, don't get bogged down in the technical details. Even me thinking about frequencies there, I was starting to get confused. So. Uh, it is probably one of the more technically complex uh, parts or activities in exploration, and I don't think you need to, to worry too much about some of those technical details. To me, it really supports drill hole targeting. So uh, it, it's not the 
geophysical anomaly or feature on its own that is so important. It's that I take that and I combine it with geology, I combine it with geochemical information, and where they all you know, lie on top of each other, all the features are pointing to the same area, that becomes great drill hole targets. So it really supports and, and, and strengthens our drill hole targeting. And of course, strong anomalies make for good drill hole targets, uh, presuming the geologists you know, have a reasonable understanding of what they are targeting and what kind of geophysical that, that target should produce. Uh, it can indicate potential size of a deposit or location of satellite deposits. Uh, as an example, let's say a company drilled a hole, they got some pretty good results. Then they did a geophysical survey uh, and they can correlate the area where they've already drilled with the rest of the survey. And it may indicate that they're just in the middle of something that's much, much bigger or on the edge of something that's much bigger. So it can certainly help to identify a potential size or, or location of you know, smaller deposits off to the size, or sorry, off to the side. And uh, you know, there's many different methods that each provide uh, unique information about the, a potential deposit. Uh, companies can use multiple methods in the same area. Uh, and just like I would like to layer good geology with geochemistry, with magnetic data, with electromagnetic data, and maybe gravity data, all of those layers are helping to build our knowledge and confidence of what we've got in an area. Uh, but always, uh, the truth is, once you drill it and you get down there, bring samples to the surface and you really know uh, what you have. So, um, yeah, great tool. One of the you know best tools we have in exploration uh, to really help us uh, get a sense of what's going on beneath the ground to then we have to drill it, as I said. So... Uh, and maybe just to end with a, a bit of a promo here, uh, Bill mentioned um, uh, my book, Mineral Exploration and Mining Essentials. Uh, so that is available on uh, on Amazon, Amazon.com, Amazon in Canada, as well as in Australia. And uh, you can also go to my website, miningessentials.com. Uh, from there, you can get links to where to get the book. I also have some online courses uh, that are available that uh, you know take you through topics like geophysics and others. So uh, if you have a chance, uh, please go to miningessentials.com uh, and uh, be um, uh, great to see you in one of the courses along the way. So uh, there we are, Bill. Thanks very much. Uh, Just a couple uh, questions, please, before you go, Rob. Sure. Uh, yeah, no problem. Red flags regarding what exploration companies can claim in a press release. Can you just point out what is an immediate red flag to you? Yeah, so I I think what I would say is I'd come back to the uh, uh, the point that I'll take with magnetics uh, again. A magnetic high anomaly is just a magnetic high anomaly. What that actually means, you have to get some samples from where that mag anomaly is through drilling to really know what it is. So it is one tool, geophysics, an important one, but be careful. Um, to read too much into that. And I think that if you get, um, you know, a company that uh, is really overstating it, we've got these mag highs and they are for sure the location of deposits. I'd be a little careful of that. I've been involved in projects where we've drilled uh, mag targets or electromagnetic conductors in an area where we know there's good sulfide deposits and found nothing. 
so they can be difficult to interpret. Um, and so I would just, I would take some caution on that. I always like to use geophysics with the other methods and, and put those together. Maybe the other one slightly related to that is you will see people promote new technologies. We've got a fancy 3D way of presenting it or new ways of processing the data. I mean, all that's good. Uh, there is new technology out there and there's better ways of collecting data and processing it, presenting it. But really, the magnetic method or IP or, or EM, those are all standard, well-established methods. And so don't get too bamboozled by a company that, that you know, we're going to find deposits where nobody found them before because we have the greatest new technology. It's all helpful, but uh, it's we haven't yet figured out how to <laughs> find a deposit uh, as a slam dunk with a with a quick geophysical survey. So I just take some caution on those and consider that data with all the other information that's available. In terms of ranking targets, if a company has a press release or they're talking up a potential target and they say, "Look at the geophysical signature that we have." And it's it's comparable to this huge mine on trend with us or in the region. If they can use an analog to their geophysical feature, does that mean more to you? Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, back in that example I gave of the Minto deposit in the Yukon, where they had done a magnetic survey, and the deposit itself had a good, strong uh, magnetic feature. I mean, that's great if you know that, because then. Other similar features in the same geological belt or region uh, definitely become better targets. Uh, I mean, the the more local that is, to me, even the better. What I do see is people will, will use analogies to a classic mineral deposit in a given style that might be in another country. That's still valid. I, I don't want to say that's not valid. That's not quite as good to me as a correlating it with another deposit that's, you know, a few kilometers away or in the same belt of rocks. But yeah, no, that that for sure helps to, to strengthen those targets, gives me greater confidence in them. When you start to really learn how to critique uh, development companies, you look at the engineer when they put out a PEA or a feasibility study and you want to know who prepared it. When it comes to geophysics, are we, should we be investigating the company that did the geophysical data? Does that matter? Yeah, good question. Um, to be honest, it's not something that I have uh, that I've worried too much about or spent much time on. Um, there's a lot of geophysical contractors out there. Um, you know, any area where there's quite a bit of exploration activity, you will usually find local contractors. Uh, and the technology, for the most part, I mean, there are new technologies coming out, but the technology of collecting the geophysical data is been fairly standardized for quite some time, uh, along with the interpretation. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't better and 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 uh, you know really sharp uh, geophysicists in terms of interpretation. And and without a doubt, there are people who are you know better at it than others. Um, but no, it's not something that, I, to be honest, I've I've done. Uh, spent too much time on. A part of the thing is is that uh, you know the geophysicists a lot of the data and the way they process it, it's using mathematical models. So that's fairly standardized. To me, it's then the geophysicist has to work with the geologist uh, because, uh, you know, 
The geophysicist sometimes needs to understand the geological framework to process that data properly. So it's not just the geophysicist on their own. It's they have to work with that exploration team. So I think if you're looking at a company and you feel confident in the exploration team in that company, uh, then that's where I would spend my effort in terms of assessing, the, say, the people involved rather than the geophysical contractor uh, that they're using. So. Rob, your website is miningessentials.com. Uh, they, listeners can find information on your book there. And do you have any upcoming courses currently booked that they could investigate? Not, not any live ones at the moment. No, uh, probably not. What are we in March? Yeah, probably not till the fall at this point. But uh, uh, the online courses that you can find uh, through miningessentials.com uh, are, are similar to my live courses and, and provide a really good overview uh, of the whole industry and, and build off the book. So uh, you can find uh, links to those through my website. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show today and further equipping me and my audience. Yeah, no problem. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.